0: It is a joy to be with you this morning. Uh, As I said to the men last night, the desire of our ministry at Ark is to partner with local churches that we know to be faithful and biblical and to encourage them. Many of the churches that have set their hearts to being faithful to God's word have endured uh, difficult days, especially in these last two years. And so our desire is to encourage uh, and to strengthen, but to be honest, in our ministry, we end up being more encouraged and more strengthened by you. And so it really is a joy, uh, with all sincerity, to be with you, to see what the Lord is doing in you and through you, and and just to fellowship and be among you. Uh, And so thank you for that privilege and for that opportunity. Uh, By order of first importance, I'd love it if you would join me in a word of prayer before I continue. Father in heaven, it is an unspeakable privilege to be doubly owned by you. Not only to be created by you as those who bear your image and likeness, But that you would furthermore redeem us through their precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that we might be reconciled to you and adopted into your family. Not just being your servants, but now also being your sons and your daughters. And so it is a high and a holy honor that we be called by you into discipleship of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we are all too keenly aware, there is a responsibility in being a disciple. We will have to give an account for our lives. We will have to come before our master and hope to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And So as disciples, it is of first importance. That we give our full diligence to being good servants, to being faithful disciples. So we pray that you give us this grace today through your word to help us to understand what is required of us and to equip us to that end, to give us what we need through your word, by your spirit, so that we might find clarity amidst all the confusion and be faithful biblical disciples to the glory of our Lord, we pray in His name, Amen. Well, friends, uh, a couple of introductory matters just to say uh, to begin with that uh, this morning session we're going to be focusing on discipleship. This afternoon session we're going to be focusing on application, and there is a purpose to both of those sessions being on the same day. They're meant to lock together like two puzzle pieces you'll see by the end of today the critical importance of understanding how to apply God's word faithfully if we're going to be faithful disciples. And so the two are meant to go hand in hand like two puzzle pieces, whichever analogy you appreciate the most, they're purposefully designed to go together. So if something happens and you have to miss this afternoon session, please do try and get hold of that recording and you will find that today is enriched by, by having both halves of uh, the program together. The men will be familiar with this already, but uh, I told them last night, and I'm telling all of you today, that as I speak to you, my desire is to follow in the faithful tradition that we were taught at uh, the Master Seminary by the man who is now our president, uh, Abner Chow. He has this concept called a Lerman. Lerman is what happens when you combine a lecture and a sermon. Like when you combine breakfast and lunch, you get brunch. We're combining a lecture and a sermon in order to get a lerman. And what's great about a lerman is it allows you to get the best of both worlds. So there is a way in which I will be lecturing you. But I am freed by the fact that this is a lerman from all the requirements and all of the rigors that would follow with a formal lecture. So if you are those who look for footnotes and references and all sorts of academic frills and thrills, know that this is not a lecture, this is a sermon. But at the same time, it's also not a sermon. So we're not strictly going to be exegeting one text, we're going to be working through a number of texts and we not necessarily say follow the same homiletical rules that we would in a formal sermon. And so if you are those who prefer a sermon, know that that's coming tomorrow. Today is a Lerman. So what's great about a Lerman for the speaker is that it exempts you from any kind of criticism. Really, if you don't like what I'm doing, it's, well, it's a Lerman, and so we just go with it. But my purpose, as it was last night, is by the means of a Lerman to exhort you and to encourage you. So my desire is to take aim at your heart, and by the all-sufficient Word of God, and by the ministry of the Spirit of God, to see you edified, built up in your faith, and exhorted to continue along that path. So that is what we're aiming at today. I did title this morning's session, Clarity Amidst Confusion, the Biblical Model of Discipleship, because... There is a lot of confusion on the topic. If you're unaware of how much confusion there is, I aim to begin by thoroughly confusing all of you this morning. That's purposeful, because out in that big, scary, evangelical world, there is a terrible amount of confusion about what it is to be a disciple that's problematic, and I'm sure there are many reasons why you could think of that being problematic, but to begin with, we know that making disciples is fundamental to fulfilling the Great Commission. If you have your Bibles, turn to a text that you know, I trust, all too well, Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 18, reads as follows. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We know that well. I think it's probably among the more well-known passages, even if you're not a believer, you're familiar with that text. The purpose of the church is to make disciples. But if we're confused about what disciples are, and what disciples do, and what the process is involved in making a disciple, and where the process of making a disciple might terminate, what the goal of it all is, then we're really going to struggle to be faithful to in fulfilling this great commission mandate that we have from our Lord, if we don't even understand what it is we need to do. The men with whom I've spent some time already are all all too uh, familiar with this kind of confusion. Sometimes our dear wives give us instructions about what we are to do. Uh, You might know this to be something like a honey-do list. Honey, please do this, and honey, please do that, or... Sometimes it's just uh, the more subtle variant, which really does create confusion, where uh, there are just hints and uh, nudges that are given. And ladies, you know that as much as we get confused and don't always understand what it is that you're expecting of us, if you want to get the best out of us, you need to communicate with clarity. Because unless your husbands, unless us men... Grasp the concept of what is required of us, I've always wanted to be in a place that does that. I envision maybe be a white dove, but anyway, budget cuts. So unless us men understand what it is that our dear wives require of us, we're not going to do a good job of fulfilling that. And it's going to lead to all sorts of frustration and marital disharmony. And So we understand the concept all too well. We need to know what is expected of us in order to be faithful in fulfilling those expectations. The Great Commission is a critically important task for us to fulfill. But unless we have clarity on what it is that we are being required to do, we're not going to be faithful in that. But it's even more fundamental than that. Yes, we have this fulfillment of the Great Commission at stake, but even for us as individual believers, turn with me to Luke chapter 14. There is something more foundational that is at stake for us if we don't solve this confusion. Luke 14, and we'll pick it up in verse 26. There, Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And again in verse 33, so then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Jesus uses the concept of disciple to define what it is for us to have a relationship with him. So more fundamental than us fulfilling this corporate task of the Great Commission is that personal individual relationship that we have with our Lord. The gospel and how we relate to our Lord Jesus Christ is at stake if we don't understand what it is to be a disciple. How are you going to be a disciple if you don't even know what it is to be a disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ? And again, in texts like what I've just read in Luke 14, we hear all about the cost of discipleship. We're familiar with such demands of us. We know perhaps the price that is to be paid to be a disciple. But I wonder how many of you would be able to give me a helpful definition of what it is to be a disciple. So you know the price that is to be paid, but you don't know what it is that you're paying to get. Friends, there is a great need for us to understand discipleship biblically and to employ a biblical process of discipleship. Now, I'm going to uh, take care of a couple of housekeeping items. I'm going to give you my outline ahead of time. Again, if this is a sermon, I wouldn't do that. That's terrible homiletics, but this is a Lerman. and So we're talking about clarity amidst confusion, and even the title gives you a hint of what we're going to be doing. We're going to be looking firstly at the confusion, and secondly at the clarity that we need. And to get us that clarity, we're going to be looking at a definition of discipleship. And then discipleship within the Old Testament, discipleship within the New Testament, and then what it looks like for the church to implement discipleship. So we're looking at the definition, an example in the Old Testament, an example in the New Testament, and then the implementation of discipleship. That all, hopefully, I trust, give us the clarity that we need to be faithful in being disciples and in making disciples. I also want to acknowledge, in this housekeeping moment, the influence of two men in their work. The first is Chris uh, Mueller, who himself came to lecture us at uh, TMS. He's done invaluable work on this subject, now. I'm indebted to him and to his work. And likewise, to Michael Wilkins, who wrote a book, Following the Master. Both men have written excellent resources, and if you are intrigued by this, I'd love to point you in their direction for your further study and for your edification. All right, with that said, let's jump into the confusion. And as I hinted earlier, if you are unfamiliar with the confusion, my very first aim is to thoroughly confuse you. So if we get to the end of this first topic and you are bewildered and your head is spinning and you don't know which way is up, then I've done my job. Because that's what the evangelical church is like right now on the topic of discipleship. So I want to show you the confusion. I want to give you an experience of the confusion before we move towards the clarity that we need. Even if you're unfamiliar with some of the confusion, I think you do know enough to see that discipleship is something of a trendy term. right? We use it all the time. It's very popular in sermons, in conference uh, lectures, in books that we might pick up in a Christian bookstore. Discipleship is a hot topic and probably always will be. I mean, it's part of this great commission that we're called to fulfill. It's trendy, and yet the trendiness somewhat works against us. Because it's trendy, it draws all sorts of attention, and attention not always from sources that are faithful in how they handle God's Word. 2 Timothy 2.15 says we need to do our best, as those who are teachers and preachers, to present ourselves to God as a workman who is approved, not needing to be ashamed, because He rightly handles the Word of Truth. There is an implication to that, and that is that some don't rightly handle or accurately handle the Word of Truth. And when you have a trendy topic, it draws attention not only from the accurate handlers of the Word, but also from the inaccurate handlers. And so we've all manner of opinion dumped into this trendy topic, leaving us then to sift through what is helpful and faithful, or sorry, sift through what is unhelpful and unfaithful in order to get to what is helpful and faithful and will aid us in fulfilling the Great Commission. The reality is that almost all of us will enthusiastically embrace the idea of discipleship. I don't think anyone here would say, I'm not interested in being a disciple. I don't think any church would be bold enough to say, we're not into the whole Great Commission making of disciples thing. We're all enthusiastic to do it. We're all enthusiastic to be it. But we struggle with implementing it. And even perhaps as church leaders, pastors and elders are excited to fulfill the Great Commission and to make disciples. They're enthusiastic about having disciples within their church, and yet when they come under the challenge of seeing discipleship happen within the church, they wrestle with how to implement it. And there are a couple of reasons for this. Perhaps there are some of the older saints, some of those who've been around for a while. Regardless of your physical age, you've just been in the church for a number of years, and yet you are inexperienced in what it is to do discipleship. And so you're excited about discipleship, but you've just got no experience of discipleship. And so are somewhat lost and confused as to what it is to make disciples. Another reason is just a simple, practical fact. There is a messiness to relationships. Discipleship, and we'll get to the point that we understand what it is, but we know that there's a relational aspect to it, don't we? Discipleship in some way, shape, or form has to do with relationships, both vertically with God and horizontally with one another. But relationships in this world, and even within the context of the church, remain messy. And so anything that is hitched to a relational aspect is going to be encumbered by the messiness of relationships. We also just misunderstand how to encourage one another to follow Christ, don't we? And again, you know enough to know that discipleship involves some element of following either another person or Christ Himself. And so we know there's an element of following Christ or following me as I follow Christ, as Paul might say. But we don't really know how to do that well. It's kind of like, and I've referenced the marriage analogy already, it's kind of like when a man gets married and he's in that wonderful honeymoon phase and all is right with the world and he can do no wrong but he soon understands that he's not as good at communication as what he might have thought. There is a world full of realism that dawns on him after he first tries to solve conflict with his new bride. That first moment that she realizes he's not perfect and he can actually do wrong, the husband has a great task of digging himself out of that mess and needs to do so by communicating. Well, we're not good at it. We need to learn how to do it. And the same applies when we are encouraging one another. We know we want to do it. We can see the need to do it. But practically, we need to learn how to do it well. We need to grow in our ability to encourage one another to follow Christ. I think we can also be honest and say that part of the problem is that there is a fear of how to help people flee sin. Part of that has got to do with the fear of man. We're afraid of what will happen if we lose the esteem, the respect, the friendship that we might enjoy with other people. I think there's also a cultural aspect in which, especially a place like South Africa, is very polite We don't like to intrude in one another's lives. We like to keep a respectful distance. And so when it comes to something as intimate and personal as our sins, when we insert ourselves into that realm, there's a lot of fear because we're unaccustomed to being that intimate with one another. We stumble over cultural issues. We stumble over fear issues as we're afraid of what will happen if we try and disciple others. And then, of course, there's just a lack of understanding. Again, I'm laying breadcrumbs for you, but I think you can see how discipleship and sanctification might go together. This process of growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, where we're growing in our obedience, we're growing in our holiness, we're growing in our Christ-likeness, This process called sanctification sounds like it could have something to do with this idea of discipleship, especially if discipleship is a process and not merely an event, but we don't understand how the two work together, and we don't understand how discipleship might be a means of grace, a way in which God fulfills His sanctifying work in our lives. If we're going to put all this together and try and understand why we've come to this point of confusion, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that there are a number of programs out there that focus on discipleship. Those who love programs and who create programs, I'm sure, are well-intended, but if you read the New Testament, it's not a programmatic kind of book. God didn't intend the church to run on programs. And while those of us who love structure and order have every good intention in creating programs to try and serve the church, the trouble is programs in and of themselves can create more confusion than clarity. When it comes to something like discipleship where there are an endless number of programs, those programs create an endless number of confusion points where we might muddy the waters. And of course, then there is always the dual blessing and curse of parachurch ministries. I think if you had to lump parachurch ministries into two big groups, one would be missions and they're out there trying to evangelize, the other would be discipleship. A lot of parachurch ministries focus on discipleship. But the nature of the beast is that as they have to justify their existence separate to and independent of the local church, parachurch ministries end up harming the church by coming up with unbiblical models for spiritual growth. As they focus on discipleship, they end up hindering discipleship because of the way that they try and achieve that goal. By way of personal experience, as we grew up in the church we did in Pretoria, the church was in partnership with a very enthusiastic, very faithful, godly ministry that pursued discipleship on the campus of the University of Pretoria. And they did so, on the whole, with great zeal, with great passion. The desire to genuinely serve the church and those on campus who needed discipleship. But they promoted what very many people promote. This idea that discipleship is a one-on-one kind of relationship. They chose a good concept and took it to an extreme. I think you've heard of life on life. There is an imprintation of one life upon another in discipleship. But when you make that the overarching definition of what discipleship is, you make it an exclusive one-on-one kind of thing. trouble is, as good as this may be in certain contexts, as helpful as what it may be in certain cases, there's largely an absence of that kind of model within the New Testament. As we're called to make disciples, as we're called to be disciples, The New Testament has got very few examples of one-on-one disciple and discipler kind of relationships. And so all of this comes together to stir up the waters and where there was once a crystal clear stream, we now have a muddy brook where there is a lot of confusion. Discipleship should be a means of grace. But apart from the confusion that we have, there are those that just want to tap out and absolve themselves of the responsibility to pursue it at all. An example of that might be those who are the busy parents. And as Denver said, I've got a five-year-old, I've got a three-year-old, and I've got one more on the way. I can sympathize with what it is to be a busy parent But a busy parent will easily excuse themselves from the role of discipleship, ignoring the fact that it's a means of grace and one of the primary ways in which they're called to be faithful in their parenting task. But the same is true for anyone that faces demands, whether it's demands of family, whether it's demands of work, marriage, just life. We know enough to know that discipleship is demanding. It takes time and effort and energy. So a lot of us try and opt out. The confusion, again, not only affects the way that we think, but it affects the way that we act. Because we abandon the task entirely because we don't have the clarity that we need. So really what ends up happening is we have, instead of the great commission, we now have the great omission the confusion leads to chaos. The confusion leads to an abdication of this great task with which we have been entrusted. So, how do we work towards clarity? Confusion is there and it abounds and whether you are confused about discipleship yourself or merely aren't able to articulate what it is to be a disciple and what the process is of making a disciple, we all need to drive towards a greater understanding of discipleship. If we're going to be faithful in fulfilling a biblical model of discipleship, it's not a matter of giving ourselves to a task that is limited to those who are deeply committed to Christ. It's not those who are a special type of Christian, who are a second tier of Christian. The really faithful Christians, they're the disciples. It's also not a matter of leadership training and development. You know, those who are on the path to being an elder, they're the disciples. It's not that either. It's also not a broad term for anyone who's just going to claim the name of Christ, regardless of the fruit or lack thereof in their life. it's definitely not an extra responsibility that you tag onto the Christian life, if you feel like it. It's not an optional extra, like when you buy a car and you're like, I would like that additional thing. None of these are true, so what is? How do we get towards a definition that will serve us in clarifying discipleship? Well... As we start to take some stepping stones in that direction, one man, Leroy Elms, uh, addresses some of the superficial thinking that we have about discipleship with these words, and I quote, Why are fruitful, dedicated, mature disciples so rare? The biggest reason is that all too often we have relied on programs or materials or some other thing to do the job. The ministry is to be carried on by people. Not programs. It is to be carried out by someone and not by something. Disciples cannot be mass produced. We cannot drop people into a program and see disciples emerge at the end of the production line. It takes time to make disciples. It takes individual, personal attention. Now if you imagine a funnel... We're moving from this broad spectrum of beliefs about what discipleship is. We start to narrow it down to the point that at the bottom of the funnel, we have clarity amidst confusion. We have an understanding of the biblical model of discipleship. We're moving towards that end, and Leroy Elms is helpful. But even he seems to suggest that there is a two-tier system. Those who are on the track of discipleship and those who aren't in both, Fall under the big umbrella of being a Christian. Friends, even that is a misunderstanding. Even that is confusion on the topic of discipleship. So, as we move one rung down in this funnel towards clarity, there are a number of competing definitions out there, there are a number of competing models that want to draw our attention and claim to be the biblical model. Let's look at uh, five of them. So as we're driving towards clarity, as we're driving towards definition, the first contender for our acceptance is that disciples are merely learners. Disciples are merely learners. And those that want to define discipleship in this way have got a point. The Greek word for disciple is Matheteo, oh sorry, Manthano, and Mathetes, the words meaning to learn. And so there is an element of learning within the process of discipleship. But we make an error when we take the definition of the word as the entire concept. Of discipleship and say that disciples are only those who learn from a teacher. It's limited to the process of learning. But, friends, Christians are far more than just learners, disciples are not just those who have an intellectual interest in gaining knowledge from Jesus. Even if we can look in the Scriptures and see disciples of the Pharisees, disciples of Moses, those who wanted to learn from great teachers in their day, there's still the context in which the word is used in the New Testament. So yes, the word does mean to learn. The word does refer to learners. But the way that Jesus and His apostles write the New Testament, use it in their context of writing should immediately help us to disqualify this definition, this model, as the biblical model. There is an element of learning, but there is much more to it than just learning. The second contender for our attention is that discipleship has to do with being a committed believer. Disciples are the truly committed believers you familiar with uh, someone like Dietrich Bonhoeffer who wants to call on us to count the cost of discipleship, we know that there are calls that Jesus himself gave to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and be his disciple. And so we tend to focus on that element and now define discipleship merely as those who count the cost and are willing to pay it. Jesus made radical demands, and we think that those who accept the radical demands are now the disciples. But this is part of that new two-class idea of Christianity that we're introducing, a concept that's foreign in the New Testament. Books like Radical by David Platt and others introduce this false idea that you can be a Christian, Or you can be a radical Christian. You can be a believer or you can be a zealous believer. Or to use the terminology of those who define discipleship as committed believers, you can either be an ordinary believer or you can be a discipleship. So you can be a disciple. Friends, discipleship is not about stepping up your game as a believer. Stepping onto the higher rung of commitment to Christ. And so as we have another contender on the floor, we should know that you're either a disciple or you're not. There is no middle ground. There is no lower rung. There is no first floor in this building. So the first contender, disciples are merely learners, was false. It narrowed the definition too much. The second contender, disciples are committed believers, is not a solution either. There is a third contender. Disciples are ministers. Disciples are ministers. If you subscribe to this definition, if you follow this model, the disciples are those who are exceptional compared to the everyday believers. And because they are exceptional, we're going to make them leaders. They're those that are uniquely called by God to minister to the body of Christ. And this, again, doesn't come entirely out of left field. There is an element of truth to it because we look at the Gospels and see how Jesus had disciples, and had especially 12 disciples. But when you take one element of New Testament teaching to the exclusion of everything else, the greater context of the New Testament, you come up with a skewed and a misrepresented position. Yes, Jesus did have 12 disciples. Yes, they were also called the 12 apostles. But those were not the only disciples that Jesus had. And so again, if we have a contender vying for our acceptance... We cannot define discipleship as those who minister. We cannot create another hierarchical system in which we have those who are the leaders being the ones that don the term disciple. We must not confuse the function of the 12 apostles with their function as 12 disciples. So that too has to be rejected. It's an insufficient, it's a misrepresented, it's a distorted view of discipleship. Discipleship is not just about uh, being a learner. It's not just about oh, sorry. It's not about being a committed believer. It's also not about being a minister or a leader. The fourth contender that we have to consider is that disciples are merely converts. Disciples are merely converts. Again, we have something of a false understanding of how discipleship happens. You don't convert and then at a later stage become a disciple. There is no progression in the life of a Christian in which you convert and then again You accept a disciple uh, role. It's much like the confusion that we have with Lordship Salvation where you accept Jesus as your Savior and not as your Lord until a later stage. Disciples are not merely converts. Disciples are not a progression in conversion. This again fails to honor the full context of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 28 that we've read already tells us that everyone who is called to follow Christ is to be a disciple. But it also includes baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. And so if you're going to define disciples as merely those who either put their foot in the door and will accept the mantle of discipleship later as they embrace Jesus as Lord at a later stage, we're going to be confused. We're also similarly going to be confused if we just make them synonymous. Converts and disciples, they're related, but they're not equal. We need to define the term more carefully. They're merely describing disciples as converts. And so, the four contenders that we've considered is that disciples are learners, disciples are committed believers, disciples are ministers or leaders, disciples are merely converts. None of these sufficiently honor the context of the New Testament. And so, as we continue to work our way down the funnel, the fifth contender is one that deserves some serious attention from us. Disciples are all true Christians who are in the process of discipleship. You see, every Christian is a disciple. There's no such thing as a Christian who's not a disciple, especially if you accept this definition. Every born-again believer is a disciple. But it's not just about getting your foot in the door. It's not just about merely being a convert, and it's not about stepping up your game at a later stage. Every born-again believer is the disciple, but they're also in the process of discipleship. They're in the lifelong process of growth, which we call progressive sanctification. As we consider this definition, as we consider this model, consider the words of James Montgomery Boyce, who subscribed to this definition. He says discipleship is not supposed to be, sorry, discipleship is not supposed to be a second step in Christianity. As if one first becomes a believer in Jesus, and then if he chooses, he becomes a disciple. From the beginning, discipleship is involved in what it means to be a Christian. So friends. Driving you further towards our goal of clarity, I would suggest to you that this fifth idea, fifth model, fifth definition, that disciples are all true Christians who are in the process of discipleship, is the one that comes closest to the biblical model, the one that merits our attention and our consideration. Because Christ's purpose in the Great Commission includes both conversion and growth. It's not just an event, it's also a process. It's not just salvation, it's also sanctification. A believer becomes a disciple the moment he is born again and he continues in the process of discipleship until he is glorified and taken to be with his Lord. So, As we consider which among our contenders is the clear definition, the biblical definition, the faithful model for us to follow, I would would ask you to consider that the fifth definition is the one that is most faithful to the New Testament teaching of discipleship. Consider the following quote from Chris Mueller. He says discipleship is the ongoing life of a Christ follower, the growth of a believer. Believers are responsible to help one another mature as Christians through this means of grace. Discipleship is part of the ongoing sanctification in the life of a believer as he learns to live life in obedience to Christ through relationships that have the same goal." Discipleship is the practice of growing in every area of the Christian life with other believers, conforming to Christ in nature, character, values, purposes, thoughts, knowledge, attitudes, and will. And it is the lifelong process of becoming like the Master, Jesus Christ, together. Now this is what I want you to consider. Discipleship is about coming to Christ, growing in Christ, together with those who love and follow Jesus Christ. If we're going to drive towards the biblical model of discipleship and get clarity amidst all of the confusion, what I want to show you from both the Old Testament and the New Testament in the time that we have is that discipleship has both a vertical relational element to it and a horizontal relational element to it. That relationship begins when we are born again, when we are regenerated through the power and the grace of God in the gospel, and it continues in a process called sanctification where the Spirit of God dwells within us and conforms us more and more into the likeness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But it's not in isolation. It's not a solo task. It is a communal task. It's something that's done in community, in corporate activity, together with the body of believers called the church. And as we all together have vertical relationships with our Lord, our horizontal relationships with one another are meant to spur one another on in this process. Together, we're engaged in evangelism to start the process of discipleship with others. And together, we're engaged in the process of teaching and training and discipling so the process continues in sanctification. And so not just as individuals in a vertical relationship, but as a church in a horizontal relationship, we engage in this great commission activity of making disciples disciples. Seeing those start the process and seeing those continue in the process through all the means of grace that our God gives us. But this must be a purposeful commitment, a purposeful mission that we engage in both as individuals and as the church. We need to learn from and to follow Christ along with those who share the same heart. We need to have intentional relationships for the purpose of growing in Christ. The reason why this is so critical for us to grab onto when we have the clarity, once we come to the point of being able to accept that this is the biblical model for discipleship, is that all of that confusion has got practical outworkings. As I said to the man last night, bad theology hurts people. And when you buy into an unbiblical model of discipleship, what ends up happening is you have churches that are satisfied with bucks, buildings, and bodies, as one man said. Money's coming in, you have a building, and you have people sitting in the pews, and you pat yourself on the back and think that you've done your job. That is not fulfilling the Great Commission. And that comes directly out of the confusion that exists about what it is to be a disciple, what it is to make disciples. And so there are very practical implications to understanding what the biblical model of discipleship is, and it is critically important that therefore we have clarity Not only so that what we believe about discipleship is right, but what we do about discipleship is right. So that it's faithful and honoring to Christ. And when we give an account of our lives and our ministries, then we will hear those wonderful words, well done, good and faithful servant. So let's consider briefly discipleship in the Old Testament. Discipleship in the Old Testament this is going to help us get towards that point of clarity. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 8. Interestingly enough, if you do a search for the term disciple or disciples in the Old Testament, you're only going to find two instances of it both here in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 16 says, Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. Flip over to chapter 50 of the same book, Isaiah chapter 50. And there in verse 4 that reads Isaiah 50, verse 4, Lord Yahweh has given me the tongue of disciples, that I may know how to sustain the weary with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. And so you might easily be tempted then to look at the Old Testament and say, well, obviously discipleship was not a big element of the Old Testament. It must be a New Testament concept. And while you are partially right that the word itself does not appear often in the Old Testament, the concept is certainly there. We see it, and time will not allow us to explore in detail, but we see it, for instance, in the relationships that are enjoyed between men like Moses and Joshua. Men like Elijah and Elisha. There certainly was a modeling of discipleship in the Old Testament where you had men who were faithfully pursuing Yahweh and doing it together with others so that their vertical relationships were being encouraged by horizontal relationships as they sought to follow Yahweh, not only in an act or a moment, but in a lifelong process. Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha are great examples of that. When we consider, though, the distinctive features of Old Testament discipleship, there are a couple things that we need to keep in mind. Firstly, the relationships that we find in terms of discipleship in the Old Testament were formed in the service of God. They had the purpose of serving God in a particular way, and so often they were fulfilled through the role of a servant, following the example of a master who is marked out as one serving the Lord. Moses was a servant of God. He served God by leading the people of God, and he needed to train up another. And so it's formed in the service of God. But it's also training others to carry on the work. Moses himself served God, but he also needed someone to take over from him when he could no longer serve God as a servant. And So he needed to train up Joshua so that Moses could be a disciple, but Moses could also make disciples so they could fulfill this ministry that God has given them. It's also often seen in the time of crisis. Israel was frequently in crisis in the Old Testament. And so the people were in great need of faithful leadership. And so God sends a mentor to train up, to guide a new leader. But if we put all this together, it's important for us to note that as there was a servant of God and he would train up another to take on his role or train up a leader for the people through this process of discipleship, the one who is doing the discipling at a horizontal level never sought more authority than God himself. And so he never aimed to make a disciple who would call him his master. He was always a fellow servant. The master was Yahweh. And the goal to be accomplished was that another follow in the faithful service of Yahweh. And so even though there was an element of following the human master, in reality, they were just learning from him how to serve and to fellowship with Yahweh Himself. And so there was a deflection away from the discipler to the master of all the disciples, which is where many of our contemporary models go so wrong. Too many ministries, too many programs today focus only on that horizontal aspect of making people who will follow other people instead of together helping one another to follow Christ. But while I'm telling you that discipleship is modeled, even if it's not necessarily described very often uh, explicitly in the Old Testament, there is a great discipleship text to which we need to turn. And I wonder if you can start thinking, perhaps, if I had to ask you right now, what is the great defining text on discipleship in the Old Testament? I wonder how many of you would have an answer ready to give. If I had to pose the same question of the New Testament, I'm sure it would be an easy one for you to answer. What's the great text on discipleship in the New Testament? Matthew 28. Easy answer. Where do we go to see discipleship most clearly expressed in the Old Testament? Friends, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Don't let the fact that we don't see the word disciple cause you to imagine that this has got anything to do, or it doesn't have anything to do with being a disciple of Yahweh and making fellow disciples. Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, it reads, Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments, which Yahweh your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do it in the land where you are going to possess it. So that you and your son and your grandson might fear Yahweh your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I am commanding you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you shall listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey." Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall speak of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign in your hand, and they shall be as phylacteries between your eyes. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Friends, that is the clearest and profoundest expression of the idea of discipleship within the Old Testament. Notice the three key elements to discipleship. Firstly, it is a call to begin following Yahweh. It's a call to begin following Yahweh. Verse 1, there are statutes and judgments which Yahweh, the God of Israel, has commanded that Moses begin by teaching the people of Israel that they might do them. There is a call to those who were not faithfully following Yahweh, who were rebellious in their hearts and unfaithful in their lives, to begin the process of loving Yahweh with all their heart, mind, or their heart, soul, and, and mind. But it's not just an act. It's a process. That's why Israel is called upon to love Yahweh with all their heart, with all their soul, with all of their might. And all the words which Moses was going to give them should be on their heart. Because as they went into the land that was promised to them, they need to be faithful to obey what had been given to them. It was not enough that they begin the process, but they needed to continue the process. They needed to follow faithfully in what God was calling them to do. They needed to be obedient to His commands and conformed to His character. It's not just an event, it's a process. So already we have two key elements, but thirdly we can see how it involves a horizontal aspect too. Obviously Moses was teaching Israel, but Israel was to teach the next generation. That's why they were to speak of it to their sons. And their sons were to speak of it to their sons. And likewise, on and on throughout the generations. And the word of Yahweh, which was to describe what a disciple is, was to impact every aspect of their life. So this process of helping one another follow Yahweh involved daily tasks like sitting in their house, walking by the way, lying down, rising up, getting dressed, and walking through your home where you might even see the word of Yahweh on your doorposts. And so there is a call to begin a vertical relationship with Yahweh. There is a call to continue in that relationship in sustained and increasing obedience to Yahweh. And there is a call to do it in a community Throughout the generations that together we might join with those of like mind and like heart to follow Yahweh. And what I'm suggesting to you today, friends, is that that is the very definition of discipleship. Those three key elements, that fifth contender that we considered is the clarity that we need to pursue if we're going to pursue a biblical model of discipleship. And even though we don't often think of the Old Testament as being rich in discipleship, here it is, one of the great texts in all of Scripture. But of course, it is there explicitly, more frequently described in the New Testament too. So as we consider the Old Testament, we must now also consider the New Testament. Again, just briefly turn with me to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, beginning verses 13 and 14, we read, And Jesus went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, to be with him and to send them out to preach. In these... Gospel accounts that are filled with the description of how Jesus made disciples. It begins with Jesus calling men to be with him. The profoundest and the simplest expression of what it is to be a disciple. Those who were with Jesus. And A.B. Bruce, in his book, The Training of the Twelve, elaborates on what it was for Jesus to make a disciple from those who were with him. He describes three stages that I think we're all familiar with in the New Testament description of Jesus being with those twelve men. Firstly, there is the fellowship level, where, as Bruce writes, the disciples were implied believers in him as the Christ. They began by fellowshipping with Jesus as they came to believe that he was the chosen one, that he was the Messiah. But there was also, secondly, a season of uninterrupted attendance to his purpose involving the habitual abandonment of their secular occupation. And thirdly, there was a distinct training period when they were chosen by their master from the mass of his followers and formed into a select band to be trained for the great work of the apostles. And really what I think Bruce has described for us in his keen insight into how Jesus made disciples is that there was a moment in which they were called to believe, to begin the process. There was a period in which they continued in their process. And then there was a moment that they were sent out together, others together with them, as they continued in that lifelong process. The three key elements of discipleship. Now, Jesus' model of discipleship far exceeded anything that had been known before in that context. If we read, for instance, John 9, 28, we see that there were disciples, and the concept of discipleship even before Christ called the twelve to himself. Moses had disciples, the Pharisees had disciples, but all of these discipling models among men would fall short of what Christ would do with his twelve. He would institute a grand new approach for calling men to follow him, carrying them through the process of following him, and gathering others around them to do the same. As I've already said to you, the key element is that they were with Jesus. Let's go then to Matthew 28. We've read it already, but we're now in a position to be able to understand some of those key elements to clarify where we may have been confused. Let's read then what we are already so familiar with. Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore. Friends, there were those to whom the disciples were sent, who are not yet disciples. The great commission begins by Jesus sending those who have already begun the process of discipleship to be among those who have not even started it yet. They need to go to those who are not yet disciples and they need to make disciples not of a limited group but of all the nations. There is a beginning point to discipleship. And Jesus wants to see those from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation start the process of discipleship. But that is not where the full stop comes into the Great Commission. That's not where the task ends. That's not its entirety. There is more than just an act, there is a process. Which is why Jesus says you need to baptize them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. There is a lifelong process of growth in obedience, growth in Christlikeness, growth in sanctification that every disciple needs to be on. The second key element to discipleship is that there be a process not just a point at which it begins. But we don't do it alone. Jesus saying, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, with all of us who are disciples. Equipping us, enabling us to do what he has called us to do, and fulfilling this great commission mandate to make disciples. But we're not there as solo artists. We're there as a community of disciples who gather others in through the point at which it begins and throughout the process that it continues. So we see not only the vertical aspect, but the horizontal aspect of discipleship. It's a call to follow Christ, to do so throughout your life, And to do it with those who are like-minded and like-hearted. There are intentional relationships that help us pursue that great relationship with Jesus. Robert Coleman, in his great book, The Master Plan for Evangelism, summarizes the Great Commission in this way. He says that the Great Commission is not merely going to every part of the planet preaching the gospel, even though that is imperative is not merely baptizing a large number of new converts or teaching believers the commands of Christ even though those pause those are parts of the discipleship process what really matters is the perpetuation of discipleship in the lives of Christians Jesus expected his disciples to reproduce themselves into the lives of other believers who would then disciple others to come to Christ And to become like Christ. Friends, I hope we now have the point of clarity that we can understand that the biblical model of discipleship is not like what we are often told by the gurus and the programs of our day. It involves following Christ, not in a point but in a process and doing it with others. And just as Jesus trained men here on earth, now with Him in heaven, the body of Christ continues to train men as we are called to be disciples and to make disciples. And so I'm going to end by leaning onto Chris Mueller again and giving you a brief outline of how the church needs to implement discipleship before we go to a brief time of QA. So what does it look like when we put all this together and have these intentional relationships for growth, intentional relationships for disciples? Well, to quote Chris Mueller, he says, first of all, we have the training requirements. It begins with genuine salvation and the message of the gospel. It involves sanctification and dependence upon the Holy Spirit, and it involves pursuit of Christ-like character. Genuine salvation through the message of the gospel, sanctification, dependence on the Holy Spirit, and pursuit of Christ-like character are the training requirements. But what is the training environment? It's immersion into a healthy local church and it's ministry through one's spiritual giftedness. Being part of a healthy local church and using your gifts to serve and be served by one another is the training environment for discipleship. What is the training commandment? It includes the Old Testament exhortation to fathers to train their children according to Deuteronomy 6 and the New Testament commissioned by Christ to make disciples according to Matthew 28. So we not only have the requirements in the environment but also the commandment from both Old and New Testaments to make disciples. He goes on to describe the training movements which he says begins with God's sovereign calling the good works which God has prepared beforehand, according to Ephesians 2.10. It includes Christ's example of training His men by making them practice life and service and ministry along with Him, according to Mark 6. It includes attention to the next generation, according to 2 Timothy 2, and a focus on the total person in the training process, according to 1 Timothy 4. So the movement as it begins... Begins with God's sovereign calling and continues through Christ's example of training his men and gives attention to the next generation and the focus on the entire person in the process. What is finally, according to Mueller, the training commitment? The commitment is to a goal of becoming complete in Christ. And that's what all of this is about that we ourselves and the church along with us, every believer in Christ might be presented complete in Christ on the day in which the bride is reunited with the bridegroom. So friends, I trust you all believe that discipleship is of critical importance. And I hope that you can be served by understanding the need for clarity amidst the confusion Because when we are confused, we don't fulfill the commission the way we are called to fulfill it. We miss the mark when we misunderstand the goal. Discipleship, if we're going to define it biblically, if we're going to get clarity on the biblical model, is that every believer, every born-again believer, every convert to Christ is a disciple. In the process of discipleship, along with others of like mind, who spur us on and whom we spur on as our vertical relationships enable us to follow this great horizontal relationship of discipleship to our Lord Jesus Christ. With that, if I haven't bruised your brains beyond redemption, we have an opportunity for some Q&A. There's much that I've said, and I thank you for your patience, but there's also much to be said. And so if I'm going to serve you well, perhaps an opportunity then for you to tell me what we might still discuss. Do you have questions? Do you have comments? Do you have criticisms? Those are free to flow as well. Don't hold back. So I'll take a brief moment. You consider what would you like to say, what would you like to ask when it comes to clarity amidst confusion in the role of discipleship. very interesting as a cat because it's it's increasingly Once you understand the definition of discipleship, well, I mean, practically, stop reading David Platt's book. Um, but once you understand the process of discipleship, that every one of us is on that process, if we're claiming to be a believer, then automatically you need to know that you're included in whatever discipleship involves, right? So we can self-exclude us from the process of discipleship. Because like you're saying, if we buy into the model that discipleship is just the radical Christian or the the second tier Christian, the leader or whatever you might think he is or she is, we in our own estimation of ourselves tend to disqualify ourselves more than to qualify ourselves. If we say, right, discipleship is for the radical ones, the super committed ones, the leader's the ones that stand up head and shoulders, very few of us would be bold enough to say, cool, that describes me, so I'm, I'm in. Most of us would say, well, I don't, I don't live up to that standard. I don't live up to that mark. We're, we're, we're just crushed by the humbling experience of struggling to maintain consistent disciplines and our quiet times. We're not reading consistently, praying consistently, attending church consistently, and so we're like, well, if discipleship is a call for radical Christians, you need to look somewhere else. It's not me. So to begin with, we need to not disqualify ourselves. Include ourselves both in the reception of discipleship from others and in the giving of discipleship to others. So expose yourselves then. If you are part of this discipling movement, expose yourselves to the means of God's grace to grow you in your discipleship. Which means heavily investing in the ministries of the church. Both the the formal, uh, structured ones that you might have on a Sunday, which are critically important. The preaching of God's word is his primary means of grace among his people. So don't ever turn away from that. But also don't ignore the less formal, the unstructured, the the smaller ministries. The times in which you're grabbing coffee with a fellow believer, you're having a meal with another family. The times you're having Bible studies and prayer groups and everything else that we do together as a group of believers. Expose yourself to that. Sit under that. Be in the means of God's grace to receive that. And then once you are being served in that, make sure that you're diligent to serve others in that. If you are a disciple, obviously you're meant to receive, but you're also meant to give. Don't disqualify yourself from what you are called to do. I mentioned that early on. Some of us just are overwhelmed by life. We've got work responsibilities, family responsibilities, everything is crying out for our attention. But don't neglect discipleship. You need to give as much as what you need to receive. And so, as far along as you are in the process, I guarantee you there is someone who's not as far along as you. You may only be saved for two days. Find someone who's been saved for one day and pour into their life. Be a conduit of this grace as it comes into your heart to make sure it flows out from your heart. And so, again, we can talk a lot about this, but I hope that that's helpful. Don't disqualify yourself. And once you include yourself, receive and give in this means of God's grace, which is discipleship. can you comment on. Practical wisdom in discipleship, uh, maybe with regards to women on women, yeah. men on men, uh, young to old, or, 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 sorry, old to young, rather than old to old. Can you maybe just comment? Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks. Um, I, I had a friend, to begin answering your question, I had a friend, uh, we attended as students uh, an OM rally at the University of Pretoria. And uh, this guy's a, a clown of note, and so afterwards he comes to me and he says, you know, putting on this tearful expression on his face, I've, I've been called by, by the Lord. I think it was George Fervor who uh, was speaking at that stage, and he's like, I, I've been called, I had this experience, the Lord spoke to me, I've been called, I'm going to give myself to full-time ministry, and I said, oh really, you know, what are you thinking? He's like, the Lord's called me to, to women's ministry, and uh, of course he was just being a silly single man. But, uh, yeah, we don't advocate men discipling women in that life-on-life aspect. There is a sense in which men do disciple women within the corporate context of the church because, like I said to you, the primary means of God's grace is the preaching of God's Word. And so as we all together sit under the ministry of God's Word, the pastor and the elders, the, the pastors of the church, are discipling the woman of the church in that regard. But we don't advocate one on one, life on life between a man and a woman unless it is a husband and his wife. The husband, again, to give you another example of a man discipling a woman, is called to be the spiritual leader. And what else is that other than sustained, lifelong, committed discipleship? But don't disciple a woman who is not your wife, who is not your daughter. Woman, don't try and disciple men who are not your husbands or your sons or your fathers. Be wise and remember that while we are in the process of discipleship, we still have a distance to go. And in the distance between where I am now, regardless of who you are, and where I have yet to be in perfect Christlikeness, there is a wealth of temptation. There is no man, no woman who is mature enough to say, I am far along enough in the process of discipleship that I am immune to the temptations of sexual sin. So don't be a fool and expose yourself to those temptations under the guise of discipleship. Rather, Titus 2 gives us this model of what the life-on-life, one-on-one kind of aspect of discipleship looks like. All the women training younger women. All the men training younger men. And it's got less to do about your physical age and more to do with your stage in life. So don't think that you're off the hook until you have gray hairs and a wrinkled face. Teenagers get involved in discipling preschool kids. Young adults get involved in discipling teenagers. Young marrieds get involved in discipling young adults. Those with young children get involved in discipling newly marrieds. Those with older children get involved in discipling those with younger children. Those whose children are out the home and on their own get involved in discipling those who still have children in the home, and on and on it goes. In every phase of life that you're in, look for someone who's in the phase behind you and disciple them. And then look forward for the ones that are ahead of you and place yourself under their discipling ministry. Like I said earlier, if you've been saved for two days, look for someone who's been saved for one day and disciple them. But by the same token, even if you've been a believer for 50 years, I'm sure you can find someone who's been a believer for 51. Find that person and be discipled by that person. Any other questions? You know, the trouble with programs is that and, and again you may think of the exception to the generalized rule I'm about to put on the table, but programs generally tend to undervalue minimize the role of the local church right so God's design in case it's not glaringly obvious to anyone who would read the New Testament is to do his work in and through the local church. Anything that you can name when it comes to the New Testament and what we are to expect from the Christian life is to be done in and through the context of the local church. Whether it's missions work on the foreign field, in and through the local church. You go and plant a church and you do everything else through the ministry of a local church. Or whether it's here at home, in and through the local church. That's God's design. And the programs that we have, the programs that we are given, most often undervalue that because they think that there's a way to improve upon that. They think that they are able to take what is old and make it new, improve it. We've learned so much. Look at all we've learned from psychology and business strategy and everything else that the world has come up with. So let's implement those in the context of the church in the programs that we're now going to pursue. You know, when you look at most programs, they look more like they were written by someone with an MBA than someone who's got a a Master of Divinity, an MDiv. Programs take us away from Christ's program for the local church, is my contention, in general. And if you can think of the exception to the rule, then that's fantastic. But everyone that I've ever come across, the more you pursue it, the more it takes you away from the church, the, the more it pulls you towards a business-type model that I don't think is in accord with, with the New Testament. Okay. Well, if there are any other questions or comments, criticisms, feel free to corner me now as we take a break. I'd be glad to talk to you. Uh, thank you for your patience. I know it's, it's a long session. It's a Lerman, though, so it's allowed to be long. Um, I look forward to having you this afternoon. There is a key to discipleship, which is the ability to apply Scripture faithfully and accurately, and we're going to see how that fits into the puzzle uh, as we come back after to lunch. So, any further instructions?